The Water Values Podcast, Session 125. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things fine. Now here's your host, Dave McGibbs. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We have a great show for you today. We have a full show for you today. We've got uh, a feature interview with John Friedman of Suez Water. Uh, you may remember John from back in episode 80 when he came on and talked uh, about some uh, technological advancements in water treatment. Uh, today he's here to talk about U.S. water policy with, again, his new position uh, as the global government affairs leader uh, with Suez Water. Um, we also have Reese Tisdale, who returns for another Bluefield on Tap segment. And Reese is going to get into a lot of interesting stuff that's going on in the market right now, especially a really interesting uh, uh, details concerning San Jose Water's acquisition of Connecticut Water, uh, the attempts by Cal Water to take over Connecticut Water, and now the hostile takeover bid that Cal Water has launched for San Jose water. So that's a really interesting thing that's going on in the markets right now. Um, but again, we've got a great show for you. John Friedman's terrific. Reese is terrific. Uh, and before we get to them, I want to thank you for the uh, great ratings that you've given over the, since the last episode. We got another five-star rating up there. Uh, did not leave a review, though. So if, if you've been listening to the podcast and enjoying it, please leave a rating and a review. It just helps others find the podcast uh, and explain why you like it. So without further ado, let's get to Reese Tisdale with the Bluefield on Tap segment. So here it goes. Well, Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap segment. It's finally spring, so uh, welcome welcome back. Yeah, I think we finally made it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. As, as we were talking earlier, you know, uh, uh, had the first baseball game of the season last night for Little League, so it's it's definitely feeling like spring finally. But uh, uh, so, what's on your mind? What uh, what what are kind of the big things that you're thinking about uh, these days? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I've been on the road. I've actually been in Europe for a couple of weeks, and now that I'm back, trying to sort of get my head around what's happening in the U.S. and uh, I tell you, what's interesting has come up recently. I mean, we, at Bluefield, we got a lot going on, but I don't know if you've seen these uh, sort of the back and forth on the M&A activity among, in the, among investor and utilities, particularly large investor and utilities. So you got California Water Services and San Jose Water SJW Group, as well as uh, Eversource, all vying for different positions uh, in different markets across the country. So it's really interesting to see what's happening there. Yeah, so can you sketch out exactly what's happening for those for those who may not be familiar with what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the whole – so stepping back, looking at IOU, M&A as a whole, it's something we at Bluefield track. You know, to give you an idea, there were 90 deals last year totaling about $2.1, $2.2 billion total. Eversource's acquisition of Aquarian – was 1.7 billion of that. So dollar-wise, it was a big chunk. But what's interesting more recently, so basically uh, SJW out of San Jose made an uh, offer to, and agreed upon offer to acquire Connecticut Water. You know, so a cross-country transaction, they were going to acquire this. I think it was about $750 million acquisition. Immediately thereafter, Eversource, 
made a challenging offer, a competing offer to acquire Connecticut Water. That was subsequently rejected. But now, just yesterday, it comes out California Water Services out of San Jose as well, who's one of the larger IOUs in the country, basically made public that it had made three offers to acquire SJW since September. And the reason it went public was because the board of, board of directors of SJW had rejected them three times. And finally, they said, look, we're offering a better deal for your shareholders. We're going to leave it up to them and let them know uh, what we're willing to offer. California Water Services has offered $1.9 billion to acquire SJW. And so now it's going to be up in the air to see what actually happens to all of this, uh, all of this deal flow. Uh, particularly for large systems, which you don't see a lot of in the U.S. market. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like there's a proxy fight coming up in that. And there's another interesting twist where where uh, w- one of the former executives for Connecticut Water, right, is, is the new CEO, Eric Thornburg, who was actually a guest on the Water Values podcast way back in, like, episode 38 or 39. So just interesting stuff about that. former company. Now, we'll see, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I mean, $1.9 billion deal is a big deal, but that would make Eversource acquiring Aquarian, San Jose or SJW acquiring Connecticut. And now we've got uh, we've got California Water, uh, or Cal Water, as many call refer to them as, uh, on the prowl, so to speak. <laughs> well, so what what, do, what does this M&A activity, what do you, what's that kind of... Uh, you know, how, how do you think that's impacting, say, infrastructure? Are, is, are, are investors looking out there saying, hey, there's going to be a lot of investment. We want to get in on that investment, and, and we want to get in through one of these companies. Or, do you have any insights on how all this M&A activity uh, is translating into infrastructure, the infrastructure piece of the puzzle? going back and forth. I mean, all the companies that we just talked about, that is the case. But, you know, as I mentioned, the 90 deals last year, there is activity among particularly American Water, Aqua, uh, and and California Water, and so on, these existing IUs. But there is a lot of interest and activity, and the number of, whether it be private equity firms or, as we call them at Bluefield, outsiders looking in, are trying to position themselves to get into the water sector. Most of the deals are small. It's a hard market to get into because uh, if you got money burning a hole in your pocket like some of these uh, financial players do, they're looking for a big platform. They're looking to invest because they see growth. They see opportunity, one, to make systems more efficient, but also cities and municipalities and utilities, they are in need of of capital in many cases. So it's just back back and forth that everybody likes to talk about. But, uh, you know, I think as we talked about uh, several weeks ago or a month ago, the, um, you know, the CapEx demands from the municipal utility sector is growing. I think we projected over $680 billion over the next 10 years just of capital expenditures forecasted. So the money's got to come from somewhere. 
and rates will continue to rise along with that. So, uh, and companies do see M and A as a way to get into the market. Right, right. Uh, what is Bluefield? Uh, anything else coming out from Bluefield recently, or or in the near future? Yeah, I mean, also related to. I mean, I guess it's all related to infrastructure. <laughs> Interesting. I think what we did is we did some analysis of 31 countries around the world, you know, the U.S., Canada, European countries, Australia, in looking at asset management. And so, you know, basically there's about $2.9 trillion of utility assets under management that need to be managed and maintained. And I think what's happening is that the, you know, Asset management is not new, but I think utilities are now under a particular strength. They've got aging workforces. They're facing more climatic uh, pre- volatility or pressure from large storm events. And the infrastructure is getting old, particularly in these developed markets. And so they're having or they're turning to more advanced systems, whether it be hardware, software, uh, and companies that have you know alternative or unique business models to you know, offset some of these uh, risks and pressure that they're facing. I think that really the magic number that we came up with is looking at all these systems and assets was that advanced uh, asset management is expected to save about $41 billion uh, over the next 10 years. So uh, it could be interesting to see what happens in that space. And the competitive landscape is crazy when you look at all the logos generally speaking who's who's positioning within these utility utility silos as we call them yeah yeah well it sounds like it might uh, deserve its own podcast of revisit asset management back from uh, in the i think it was in the early 70s we had a uh, uh scott haskins from ch2m hill was on talked about asset management but this sounds like something uh, that, that would go beyond kind of what the scope of that, that discussion was. But in any event, Reese, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you taking some more time to shed some of your knowledge with us, share some of your knowledge with us. So uh, thanks so much, and we'll see you back on the next Bluefield on Tap segment. Fantastic. Happy, uh, happy baseball. <laughs> yeah, amen. Okay, bye, Reese. Well, as always, Reese does a great job with the Bluefield on Tap segment. That was really interesting stuff. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Reese, for that. Uh, now we turn to John Friedman, who does a terrific job giving us the uh, kind of the the eagle eye view of U.S. water infrastructure policy. He's going to go through a lot of stuff that's going on at the federal level right now and how that's filtering down to the states. And he's going to he's just going to cover a lot of ground. So that's just a, a little a little bit of what what John's going to cover. So without further ado. Fasten your seatbelts, open the valves, and here we go. Well, John, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could uh, uh, find time to come back and join us. Really great to have you. Uh, how you been? Um, great, Dave, and thanks for having me on the Water Values Podcast. Oh, you bet. It's been uh, it's been about eighteen months or so since you were on back, or maybe it's probably been two years since you were on back in uh, back in episode eighty. Um, I know that there's been a lot that's transpired uh, for you professionally since that time. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, uh, what has changed in your life since you were back uh, on the Water Values podcast last? Absolutely. The biggest change is that I now work for a new company. So I worked well, when we spoke last time, Dave. I worked for GE Water. GE Water was uh, one of the world's leading water treatment technology companies. It had 50,000 customers. It made membranes and 
other types of advanced water treatment technologies. And then on October 1st of last year, we were acquired by SUA. And for those uh, on your pot, uh, your list of your listeners who don't know, SUA is headquartered in Paris, and it's one of the world's leading water treatment and waste recovery companies. It has 90,000 employees and 450,000 customers, so quite a step up from what GE Water had. And GE Watergate was mainly a technology company with some operations, and Suez was mainly an operations company with some technology. And so together we have this really very complementary business that uh, is not only uh, the world's leading water treatment technologies, but also the best operational expertise in the world. Right, right. Well, so you've laid out the synergies, or at least the most obvious synergies there. What other synergies do you do you kind of feel like you've uh, been able to achieve through through that combination? Well, you know, um, in the past, uh, uh, GE Water, for example, would go to the World Bank, and the World Bank would be running a procurement for a big wastewater treatment plant uh, in Vietnam, and this is a real example. And we, GE Water couldn't really do it on that plant because we were just a technology provider, one piece of the puzzle, whereas the World Bank would be looking for somebody to come in and actually uh, design the plant, build the plant, and operate the plant. And so now that's the type of thing that with Suez we can do together. So if Suez is bidding on that project, it could involve G, former GE Water technology. And that's just one example how together the company can really address some of the world's biggest challenges, building big water reuse plants around the world, wastewater treatment. And when we go to market, we really have a much more complete offering. Um, and we're also, by the way, weaving in brand new technologies like digital water solutions. So it's really, it's, uh, it's been a really, I think, a great experience, not only for the employees, but also for our customers. Well, that's, that's great to hear now. Um, uh, let's get let's kind of uh, use that as a launch pad for for what we'll talk about today. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're you, you've you've mentioned reuse a couple of times. We've obviously seen water scarcity uh, as a as a challenge in the United States in in certain geographic locations, and it, it's actually becoming a, a, a broader problem, really. Um, so so with your you know, with your uh, location, you're still in, in D, the D.C. area, um, but what what can we do from a water policy standpoint uh, to to attack this challenge of water scarcity from from you know where you sit with with Suez and and with the, the leverage of the federal government? Sure. So so look, uh, Dave, you're right. I'm I'm still based here in Washington D.C. Where and in my new role, I lead global government affairs for. Suez Water Technologies and Solutions. And a couple of days ago, I spoke at the Wilson Center, which, as you know, is a think tank, and uh, they had a, uh, a summit on water sustainability. And there was a woman there from EPA, and she said that about two-thirds of the world's population lives in areas that are experiencing water scarcity at least once a month. So a huge global challenge. Uh, as you just said, not uh, you know, it's not something we here in the United States have avoided either. If you look at California, the Southwest, and now places like Florida and even New York City, like and, and you know, Long Island, places like Nassau County, where water scarcity is becoming a bigger challenge. And so, it, 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 
so that's, that's one thing, the challenge. Second is the technology to address this challenge totally exists. Yeah, we have membrane filters and membranes that can cover up to 70% of wastewater and other thermal technologies we call zero liquid discharge that can recover 99% of all wastewater. So they can be reused for things like growing crops, running power plants, or even filling breakwater reservoirs. So big challenge, the technology to address that challenge exists, but the world's only reusing three to four percent of its wastewater, and in the U.S., they, the Water Reuse Association says we're reusing about 8% of our wastewater. So why are we only scratching the surface of treating Whitman effect is a huge reservoir of wastewater that can be harnessed for productive purposes. And I, I think the issue is uh, one of that requires the government to step in and implement some policies that can really uh, push push this forward in a, in a big way. Yeah. So let, so so in terms of those policies, what what kind of are you you know what are you thinking about there? Right. So let me let me try and tie this into current events. Uh, we all know of the the water issues in Cape Town. Um, it, it 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 seems to me from from an outsider's point of view uh, that that had some of these policies been implemented, or maybe some were, uh, maybe they were just implemented late. You know, could could how how do these policies play into a situation like Cape Town? Um, you know how how much lead time is needed. You know, do you have any thoughts on 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 policy implementation and and averting those kinds of crises? Drought over the past several years, and that has really spurred a lot of 
reuse project in California. You see San Diego now is putting in place a program to go to direct potable reuse. If you look at the Los Angeles area, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and I think you had Jeff Keitlinger, who's the GM on your show in December, they are now looking at, they're piloting a program that would take 150 million gallons a day of Los Angeles wastewater, city wastewater, and run it through membranes so that it can be reused to replenish the groundwater supply and for other purposes as opposed to just discharge into the Pacific Ocean. Those are the types of steps that will help drought-proof areas like Cape Town. Yeah, yeah, and along those lines, I know that UCLA put out a study recently that kind of demonstrates how, as remarkable as it sounds, that Los Angeles could be, you know, not have to import water anymore in, I can't remember if it was 50 years or by 2050, but, you know, water reuse played a big component of that as well as stormwater, you know, stormwater retention and treatment and things like that, but um in terms of when when we're just just for my purposes of clarity when we're talking water reuse you're talking through the through the wastewater treatment plant how does stormwater play into that at all yeah sure it, it absolutely could so the same technology could be used to treat stormwater as it's used to treat wastewater you know one of the challenges with stormwater is you you don't necessarily control you know when it when the flow <laughs> yeah so stormwater is figure out how to collect it and store it um, in an, an appropriate way so that you don't overrun the treatment capacity of your wastewater treatment plant. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, Suez and other companies, Dave, are working on solutions for that that would involve using digital technology, in other words, soft sensors and software, so you can move the water around um, and, and until it, the plant, the, the wastewater treatment plant has the capacity to treat it. Yeah, I mean that that kind of stuff I think is really interesting. Um, well, so 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 let's let's kind of dig in if we can on these four policy factors that you identified for water reuse. The first is education. The second was uh, barriers. Third was incentives, and the fourth was was mandates. Um, from an education perspective, you know, one of the things that that I hear most often is people just say, you know, it it just has the yuck factor. So how, you know, wh- wh- what do you have any thoughts on on getting past that? Because that's just, I, I think that's the initial human reaction until you really start to think about it. Well, all water that we drink has been recycled. It's all probably gone through this process multiple times. You know, do you have any any insights or thoughts on how to how to attack that education process? non-starter. So governments have been very active in trying to figure out how to make people comfortable with this process. Singapore has led the way, Dave. You know, they have a program they call New Water, um, where they explain to people uh, the technology involved. And they start, by the way, in the schools with children. And uh, and then the public officials actually drink uh, reclaimed water so that uh, they can demonstrate to people it's totally safe to do so. 
um, and so uh, a lot of uh, stakeholder uh, involvement, education, and so forth. And then other other governments have taken other approaches. For example, I won't say who I was meeting with, but I was meeting uh, with a government official in Australia, and he said, you know, we did um, research and, and uh, stakeholder engagement and had uh, kind of uh, lots of outreach, and we found that people just couldn't get comfortable with the concept, and what really worked best was just not telling people that we were, you know, using heat <laughs> for various purposes. So, so you, different approaches work, but the point is um, it, 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 the, the water is generally safe, and it, it's generally good to tell people that condition that it is safe. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. You want to be transparent. Um, that, that's At least that's my thought. <clears throat> um, and I do think it's very smart to educate the young, you know, the, the young kids so that they, they don't, grow up and because it's, you know, it's hard to teach that old dog new tricks. Um, if we move on to the next kind of, you know, thing you identified, and those were the barriers. Uh, let, let's dive into that a little more. I think was one of the barriers you identified was, you know, essentially, uh, I, I think you identified price of water. Um, and, you know, how, how do we get over that particular barrier uh, when it comes to, to implementing these systems? Yeah, well, in the U.S., it's not particularly easy to overcome that barrier. So if you look globally, water is almost universally underpriced. And um, the kind of underpricing of water has meant that communities haven't necessarily had enough money to adequately invest in infrastructure. The chronic underinvestment in infrastructure over a long period of time has resulted in uh, these great challenges we're seeing today where the American Society of Civil Engineers last year just gave the drinking water system in the United States a grade of a D and said that water mains are breaking at the rate of 240,000 a year, which is about 650 a day. And communities simply can't keep up at this point. So um, it's kind of an intractable challenge. And how, when you say we have roughly 56,000 drinking water utilities across the country, uh, many of which set their own rates. Um, it's not like you can just flip a light switch and say, okay, we're now going to increase rates in the United States and communities will have more money. So I, I think it's uh, really going to have to be a city-by-city city kind of uh, issue where they're going to have to see the need to raise rates and do so. Having said that, rates in the U.S. have been increasing, and uh, and I think communities are having more money. Now, Dave, the other thing is the federal government recognizes this is a challenge, and they're now taking steps to provide communities across the country with more federal dollars that can be used for water and wastewater infrastructure. I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'd really be interested in diving into that because 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 really, when you know the a lot of the information you see is hey, federal investment in in water and water related infrastructure has just taken a nosedive since the '70s, since it peaked in the '70s, and so uh, I, I am interested in hearing about that. And so so could you could you talk on that a little bit? Um, 
And uh, that money has been kind of relatively stable over the past five or six years, and there's enough federal dollars to fund about nine to ten billion in uh, community projects, water and wastewater projects. This year, Dave, Congress just passed a spending bill on March 23rd that provided uh, enough federal funding to spur about $22 billion in water and wastewater projects. So a significant increase, and we can talk about where that money is coming from, but in any event, I think the important point is that Congress recognizes we're facing an infrastructure challenge. It recognizes that communities don't necessarily have the wherewithal to, to deal with this on their own, and it's providing increased federal spending. The second point is that the Trump administration on February 12th released an infrastructure plan. Now, the infrastructure plan, it's not a law, but it's a statement of principles that uh, the administration hopes Congress will use as a basis to implement a law, that a new infrastructure bill that would provide even more spending. And what the Trump administration would like to do is see the government federal government provide $200 billion in federal spending over the next 10 years to spur $1.5 trillion in infrastructure projects, a significant portion of which would be water and wastewater projects. Yeah, so... And there's one, yeah. I'm sorry, go, go ahead, John. Go ahead. Please finish your thought. I was just going to say, there's one part of that bill that would tend to provide an incentive. So $100 billion of the $200 billion would go for uh, kind of federal incentives for communities. And the criteria for communities to succeed in getting that federal money would include an ability to raise funding from the private sector or, or the state or other sources, other non-federal sources, and an ability to show access to increased revenues. And the way you get increased revenues is by raising your tariffs. So anyway, the federal government, at least in this Trump uh, infrastructure plan, is trying to incentivize communities to increase their tariffs and also turn to the private sector to unleash some of that capital that's been on the sidelines there. Yeah, so um, you've, you've said a lot of interesting things there. First off, I want to I, I, I want to dive into all this all this uh, money that's being made available by Congress. How, how is that going to filter down? Some of it goes through state revolving funds. What are the other mechanisms to get that money out into the marketplace and get these projects done? each of those by about 20% for fiscal year 2018. That money will go to the states and from the states to the communities, the cities, for public water agencies. The um, other kind of areas of funding are, I mentioned this uh, Title 16 program with the Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, that got its funding was doubled. That gets administered by the Department of Interior. Um, and it goes to the states and then turn from the states to the communities uh, for reuse projects. Um, and then the biggest piece of this is called WIPIA, which stands for Water Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act. And, and this program, Dave, is modeled on a, a an, an analogous um, transportation program called TIPIA. But in effect, what it means is the federal treasury will actually lend money directly to communities for water and wastewater projects at extremely low interest rates. Um, and uh, this program just got significantly increased and would account for about $11 billion of that $22 billion I mentioned in, uh, in, in projects being spurred by the federal spending this year. Got it, got it. Now, are, are, do, in terms of, um, and I'll, I'll kind of like pivot to, to one of the, 
the things you indicated, one of the bullets you had on reuse, which was incentives, is that money, um, you know, I don't want to say priority, but are, are projects like scored on kind of, uh, water reuse? Is that, is that one of the factors that will help? So, you know, essentially creating a resilient water supply, is that one of the, will that help you, you know, push it up to scale? Uh, regionalization, I think might be another, you know, scoring factor that could help push your project up to scale that could, could potentially make it, um, uh, you know, potentially win some of those funds. one extremely large uh, wastewater reuse project in Southern California that has just applied for a huge slug of WIFIA funding. So I, I know that uh, reuse facilities can apply for the funding, uh, but I, I don't know yeah, what, I yeah. what the criteria is. Okay. 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 Um, so one of the other things I wanted to to get to, and and you, I think you hinted at it, uh, and that was leveraging the federal investment to get the private sector involved. And can you speak to uh, you know larger private sector involvement in the water industry? Absolutely. So so first of all, there is a ton of private sector money that would love to be deployed into water and wastewater infrastructure. There are private equity firms, there are infrastructure firms, there are pension, uh, uh, there are pension uh, plans, all looking to invest in water and wastewater infrastructure because it's considered a relatively safe uh, investment. And um, the problem has been uh, that a lot of this money remains on the sidelines, even though we have this tremendous challenge to, to rebuild and, and upgrade the infrastructure. Uh, one of the reasons is because um, uh, the returns that the private sector is looking for may be higher than communities are willing to pay because uh, when communities can get uh, access to, to federal dollars or, you know, at very low rates, uh, that's more attractive than turning to the private sector. But there are a couple programs uh, that will open up opportunities for the private sector. And this WIFIA program that we just discussed is one of those because WIFIA only provides 49% of the funding for a project. So the other 51% has to come from somewhere, and that's a big opportunity for the private sector. So I do expect to see a big bump in private sector investment in water over the next year or two years. Uh, second is uh, there's something called private activity bonds, which we haven't touched on, but private activity bonds um, – are essentially uh, a private sector analog to municipal bonds. It allows a private sector company to uh, access tax-exempt debt as long as the money is being used to serve a public purpose, a water treatment plant, a wastewater treatment plant, et cetera. Those are considered uh, public purposes. So um, right now, private activity bonds uh, exist. But there's a cap on the uh, amount each year that, uh, that can be issued. And there's an effort uh, from a policy standpoint underway to remove that cap, which, again, would spur a lot more private sector involvement in the water sector because it would bring down the cost of capital for the private sector to, to a level similar to what communities uh, have. Sure, sure. And when, when we're talking about private sector investment, can I, I mean – I've had a, one of the things I'd like to explore is um, what that looks like. Is is that is that kind of um, the development of an implementation of 
P3s or public-private partnerships, or is it is it acquisition of systems with with promises to to uh, undertake significant capital improvements? What what when we talk about private sector investment in the water industry, what what does that look like? sector company look to pursue a concession with a community. Now, that's where you might give a city like Bale, New Jersey, which is a real example. Um, yeah, I'm making up the numbers, but give them $100 million up front for the right to operate their water system for the next 20 or 25 years. The city could then use the money uh, to address its pension obligations or other financial challenges it has. And uh, in exchange for that, uh, it gives this private sector uh, company the opportunity to run and uh, upgrade the water system and so forth over an extended period of time. Or you could have a public-private partnership model, which has just evolved, you know, where the private sector comes in and agrees to operate a system for a period of time, an O&M contract. There's a whole spectrum of approaches, but there are a number of projects that are being bid today. One is in Santa Clara, California. Uh, another uh, is in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, where um, there are teams of uh, private sector water treatment operating companies and also uh, private sector financial companies bidding to to come in and operate systems for a long period of time. Got it. Got it. All right. So um, the other thing, do you do you, when you look out at the water sector and and getting private investment, you mentioned a lot of private capital that's sitting on the sidelines. Uh, is, is all that capital capital with, you know, expertise or knowledge behind it? Um, and, and let me give you a little background on why I'm asking that, because I've been approached by by certain uh, people who just kind of say, look, I, I, I have a client that, that has a big pile of money. They want to get into the water sector. How do they do it? And <laughs> I, I, I always kind of chuckle on, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, because I, I, I think the barriers to entry, you got to you, you gotta know what you're talking about. You got to know what you're doing. And so I'm just kind of curious about what your perception is of all that capital that's on the sideline. Is it is it? capital that's knowledgeable, that has the expertise that's ready to be, to be deployed, or is that capital that's just kind of trying to find a way in, even though it may not have that expertise? It's a mixed bag, Dave. Um, there are some firms that are specific to the water industry, so they, they have a tremendous amount of knowledge about um, you know who the key players are and what the project pipe, the current project pipeline is, and um, you know, and so so they're very kind of wired in to the process. Then there are other firms that have capital and are saying, look, this is an attractive space. We want to get into it. And typically those firms would hire or bring on board a water operating partner. Um, so they'd have financial experts who um, can structure uh, the investments, you know, optimally. And then they have kind of somebody who really knows the water industry inside and out, has a great set of relationships that they, that can uh, they can leverage for business development, and um, and we, we you know so really kind of see both approaches. Got it, got it. I, I think that's a great answer. Um, uh, in, in terms of how do we, you know. Are, are are there other strategies that we can we can use to kind of to get the private sector? I, I know return is a big big deal for the private sector, but if we can, are there other strategies strategies we can use to to continue to try and get the private sector 
into the the water sector to to attack all these problems we've been talking about today? Right. Um, and and I, I guess my final substantive question I, I would would be along the lines of, you know, how how's EPA, um, you know, the U.S. EPA, how, how are they kind of, you know, what's their role in all this? How are they how are they reacting to the, the needs of the water sector? Yeah, yeah. Um, so b- before I ask you my final question, I- I'll just uh, will will say, look, you know, uh, John, what what have I failed to ask that you think is important that you want to get across to the audience? Um, you know, what what do you when you look out and kind of survey the the uh, water sector? What do you what what have I failed to ask that you think is important for people to 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 hear? Yeah. Well, John, I really appreciate your time. You've been absolutely fantastic today. Someone with your insights, uh, uh, you know, tapping into that knowledge and, and, and those insights, I think, is is really valuable. And I really want to, to thank you for coming on. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for those who want to find out more about you and Suez, where can they go to, to find that information? <laughs> nice and easy. All right. Fantastic. Well, uh, John, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks a lot, Dave. Uh-huh. Bye. Well, I hope you liked that interview with John Friedman. He was fantastic. Again, I, I really appreciate John uh, coming on again. You know, we've kind of stayed in contact uh, through his, his switch over from GE Water with it being acquired by Suez Water. And uh, it's been interesting 
uh, to hear how things have gone with him. And he's just, again, he's, he's just doing a great job over at Suez. So uh, thank you so much, John, for coming on. Uh, and I would love to hear what you thought about that interview with John. So please leave him uh, some comments on the show notes. Uh, you can check those out at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, five. You can also tweet about the podcast at uh, my handle, which is at DTM one nine nine three. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. Uh, you can also email me at David at the water values.com. I'm sometimes I'm slow to respond. So I apologize for that. Uh, just be patient. I will eventually get to you. Sorry uh, for those who's, who's uh, it's taken me a long time to get to you. And uh, finally, I'd like to just say, uh, let's, let's help me get to 100 ratings by the end of the year, by the end of calendar year 2018. We're at 78 now, so just a couple of weeks, uh, and we will get there. Uh, so please leave a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. would greatly appreciate it. Uh, and if you'd like to support the Water Values Podcast, you can do so by going to thewatervalues.com, scrolling down, and you'll see a little PayPal button. Just click on that. Any denomination is Much appreciated, and it helps defray the cost of putting on the podcast. So in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.